I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show uh uh welcome to uh <clears throat> <laughs> did you forget what are we doing <laughs> no uh, so many so many so many, so many damn books Welcome to So Many Damn Books. Uh, I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Mega Majumdar in the Zoom Dam Library. Megha was born and raised in Kolkata, India. She moved to the United States to attend college at Harvard University, where she was a Traub scholar, followed by graduate school in social anthropology at John Hopkins University. She works as an associate editor at Catapult and lives in New York City. And Welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And of course, you're the author of A Burning, which has just been doing incredibly. I feel like it's, um, I've loved seeing it everywhere. It's a gorgeous cover. It's an incredible achievement. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, Christopher. <laughs> the cover is all thanks to this incredible artist called Tyler Comrie. So I love it. I can and take no credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. You inspired it. Um, and you also inspired the drink that we did manage to get to drop off because this is a great thing about the people who do live in New York City is we can, we have a cocktail delivery service <laughs> um, called Drew in his car. <laughs> if Governor Cuomo is listening there, I also delivered food, wink. And so this one is inspired by your book. It's called Lovely Relief. Um, And it's because, well, you need something, a bit of a relief after your book. Um, And it's also, Lovely is the name of one of the main characters. And I just thought she would love something that is infused with something beautiful. Um, And so this is rose and pink peppercorn infused gin. I infused it for a week at home. And then um, it's just a simple gimlet with uh, simple syrup and lime juice. And uh, we delivered that to you in a little container. I think there's two, so be careful. (laughs) It is delicious. delicious. Thank you so much for making it, Christopher. And thank you so much for dropping it off, Drew. I feel like um, I've been doing a bunch of events, but this is really the first time that I've had a cocktail drop off for one. And yes, yes, <laughs> really fun. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's my favorite drink, a gimlet, um, and especially in extremely hot weather. So it's, it's, it is actually extremely hot outside. So I like that too. Yes. 
So that's the drink. And now we talk about things we bought. We talk about consumerism. Yeah. Drew, do you want to talk about a book you bought? Sure. I'm going to do a book and a liquor. Um, The liquor first, uh, because I was in the car today and I was driving around, I was up uh, in Williamsburg near Interboro Brewing, and they've recently started doing spirits as well. They have a gin, and they just released an Amaro called Ooh. Lexical. Uh, obviously, I was like, ooh, it's even got like a word title. This is perfect. So I swung by and grabbed some of that. I've only had a sip of it so far. It is, I mean, it's an Amaro. It's bitter. It's herbaceous. It's a little fruity. Um, but I was very excited. I love Ever since trying 4th Ave Spirits' Marseille Amaro, I'm on the hunt for like local Amaros. They're using cool local things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then book-wise, not really local at all. Uh, I pre-ordered from Midtown Reader in Tallahassee, Florida, Jeff Vandermeer's new novel, uh, Peculiar Peril, uh, which oh, is yeah, his, that's his, young his YA book. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a huge doorstop. It's technically two books in one. Um, and I mean, I love Jeff. I've, I've known and read him for ages and I can't wait to see what he does with a YA novel that has Napoleon's talking head and Aleister Crowley and marmots and I, and it's for kids, I guess. (laughs) So that's what I want. Mega, how about you? Um, wait, before I talk about what I bought, can I ask you, I don't know what an Amaro is. What is it? Mm, it is it's one of these liqueurs that is kind of like broadly defined it's basically an italian uh bitter digestif yeah it is usually so you infuse um like a high proof alcohol like an everclear with something bitter usually like wormwood or cherry bark or something like that throw in any number of botanicals whatever you kind of feel like throwing in there um, I've been reading about this because I really want to try it now. But then it, you sweeten it at the end, too. You add either simple syrup or maple syrup. And it comes out as this nice, kind of thick, usually 40 to 45% ABV. Um, like it's an after-dinner drink. And I've just I've become obsessed with it. It's Evan Hanser's fault, if he's listening. Uh, the genius behind the Tables of Contents reading series at Egg Restaurant or slash now online. Um, but he got me hooked on it. And now I just, I'm like, yes, I'll have my after dinner DJ Steve. Thank you. <laughs> it's funny. Cool. It can, they can, they can really run the gamut. So like if it's, it's not like with like other, like whiskey, you kind of always know what a whiskey is going to taste like, but Amaro, because they're so changeable, they're really, really like Campari is actually an Amaro. Right. So like they can be really sweet and and herbaceous in that way and they or they can go into the darker realm and be really dark and and syrupy in that way too. Something new today. Um, (laughs) Book I bought. um, I really loved. I read it. I devoured it. Marie Mutsuki Mockett's book called American Harvest. Mm. It's a book of nonfiction. And it taught me about something that I didn't know anything about, which is, did you know that there are groups of people who travel around the country harvesting wheat 
at different farms. And so Marie follows such a group from Texas to Idaho and Whoa. they're just going around like harvesting mostly wheat. But through that story, it's also about regional history and national history and geology and birds and animals and differences and religion. It's such a it's such an encompassing book. Um, I really loved it. Wow. Sounds cool. amazing. Christopher, how about you? Um, I um I picked up I, well, we were sent Sad Janet by Lucy Bridge, mm -hmm. um, which has a great cover with a sad looking greyhound or whippet in a, in a sweater. <laughs> and um, the, the plot of that book is that there, um, this, this woman who has refused, um, you know, any sort of antidepressant her whole life. She's, she's, she knows that she's depressed, but she doesn't want to do, take anything for it. Um, for many reasons, I guess. But then there, there, a new one gets released that um, is specifically for people who can't enjoy Christmas. Uh, <laughs> and that's uh, so you. Not that you and, can't enjoy Christmas, but the Christmas angle. It's a really interesting plot for a book. I'm very curious about it. And then I was really excited a couple days ago. I, someone on a stoop. It's the first book I picked up since um this whole craziness started but i had to because it was the uh the buried giant by kazuo ishigiro um hell yeah i i uh you know i read mists of avalon at the beginning of quarantine and so i feel like i'm ready for more takes on the arthurian legend and it had that black um flocking on the edges Ooh, you know yeah so it was a like first a really, edition. It's a first edition that someone gave up on their stoop like a crazy person. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so it's living outside of my apartment on our on our doorstep and I just keep spraying it with Windex. I'm like eventually not Windex, but isn't it strange that like spraying down a book would have made zero sense last year? <laughs> <laughs> and now we all know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, oh yeah, sure. You're using Windex. Interesting. <laughs> Life hacks with so many damn books. <laughs> this is why you come to the show, you guys. I know it. That uh, and the uh, books no. like a burning. Would you tell our our folks what it's about if they haven't read it yet? If there's some of the few people who haven't picked up the hot book of the summer? <laughs> um, sure. A Burning is um, my first novel, and it's a book about three people who are chasing big ambitions as the society around them makes this dangerous turn toward right-wing nationalism. That's my, that's my one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think that really works. I really loved this book. It moves at this incredible pace that, like you as a reader you have to like just because you're just propulsed with this with this plot um it, it it kind of it's funny you've got these short chapters and you're in each character's mind i was i i was thinking about um how james patterson when he talks about writing his books he says like one of my secrets is i don't let a chapter go longer mm. than four pages and like i was like oh that's i mean <laughs> <laughs> You've learned that lesson and, and applied it very nicely here. Um, and I've loved, so one of the main um, plots, one of the characters, her 
tragedy is she's posted something on Facebook that has been seized upon um, and she gets blamed for this horrible tragedy. And I just love that there is a, um, a story out there about going viral online that isn't like just like a kooky <laughs> funny thing that happened. And it's much more, it's the different type of going viral that is like a, a nightmare. And I just wanted to know, like, talk about the genesis of that story and, and how you, and how you oh, worked that Well, through. thank you so much for reading so thoughtfully. It means a lot. And I know that you read tons, so it's especially meaningful. Um, you know, the book started from a place of feeling really angry and alarmed um, about what was happening, the rise of extreme nationalism and this kind of fervent and unthinking patriotism. Um, and I, I also wanted to have this reality of social media in the book where I think sometimes we might think that social media is this space of free expression, but for people who have certain vulnerabilities in their real life, I think that really carries over into the virtual space. You know, you cannot make jokes, you cannot say whatever you want without consequence. Um, for the people who, whose identities and histories make them vulnerable in certain societies, um, the internet is not free of those, you know, prejudices and vulnerabilities. When you put something into online, you're putting it into the context of all of online. There's so many things that you're like taking taking part of when you put put out a tweet or or write mm -hmm. something on Facebook. But then you can take it out of that context, and it can just be a sentence, or it can just be a story that is not actually related to all those things that you were actually relating to. I was just thinking about how. Um, snide and snarky and ridiculous I am uh, <laughs> on Twitter, uh, especially about our current administration. And just like, I feel so safe in just writing, you know, 45 <laughs> is a real idiot. <laughs> and I don't, there's no problem with that. And it's so scary to think of these, this world where, you know, someone can be the, the patsy, they can, they can sort of be this like symbol that of, we need, if we're going to take this all down, we can just take down this one person. Um, it, it, it was very real. It felt very um, lived in. Um, and I just thought that it was so sad to see this character um, then believe that truth will set her free. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's this, then, then she gets all of these journalists talking to her. And I, and I was curious um, what your relationship is to journalism. Mm. That is such a perceptive question. Um, I have no professional relationship to journalism, but I just really love reading good reporting. And I think good reporting is vital in any democracy. Um, but in this book, I wanted to look at how this character who is really let down by the courts and by the justice system, the media is one place where she feels that she can tell her own story because in many ways her suffering comes from having a narrative imposed on her, right? So the state looks at certain elements of who she is and certain elements of her background and says, well, 
this makes a certain kind of prejudiced logic to us. We think that this person will commit such an act, but she has never had a chance to tell what her own story is, what her own concerns have been. And so in this book, I think the, the place of the media is um, just as this last chance that this character sees to, to get her story out. I love the three, the three main interlocking points of view in this book. And the fact that there are also a couple of other uh, points of view that get dropped in is so fun. But as you watch Jivan dealing with being imprisoned and talking to these journalists on the flip side, the, the male character PT Sir is just, he's so, he was the character that I, that I was so fascinated by the whole time because it felt like a story that in some ways we've heard again and again and again, this sort of like well-meaning kind of bumbling person who all of a sudden starts to get a taste of power and any thought of morality in their mind just gone. Mm -hmm. And, but it's so easy. Mm -hmm. And even reading those chapters, there's a, you do this marvelous thing of being like, Oh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's that. It's not so bad. That might not be so bad. <laughs> what was it like inhabiting three very different characters' minds mm. and and moving so quickly between them? I guess it's a two-part question. Did you write the book like that? Or did you start somewhere else and then start divvying them up? Hmm. I started with these three characters in mind and while writing, I actually had three documents going. So because I wanted to make sure that each character has their own full story. So I had these three character narratives going in these three separate documents, and then I kind of braided them together. Mm, and it cool. was really fun because, you know, each day or each time I sat down to write, I could kind of pick who I was feeling that day, you know, <laughs> what what voice did I feel like inhabiting? What register felt comfortable or appealing that day? Um, so it was really fun to have these distinct voices. And I'm so glad that um, PT Sir spoke to you, Drew, um, because I think I worked really hard on making him a character who is you know, he's just, he's just an ordinary guy. He's a school teacher and he doesn't feel that he's really having the kind of powerful impact on his students that <laughs> he might've hoped for, you know, they kind of disdain him and they're trying to get out of his class always. Um, and so he, he sees this one chance to rise and to do something different. And I guess I, I really wanted the reader to, have skepticism for what he's doing because he makes these really morally, morally questionable choices. But at the same time to understand that he's a person who is caught in a system which presents him with nothing but bad choices. You right. know? So what is he supposed to do? Yeah, it reminded me a lot of, um, of like a character in a John le Carre novel where you're like, this system sucks. Everything sucks. And if I was in that person's shoes, 
it troubles me to say that I don't know that I would necessarily make different decisions. Right. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. he gets to feel chosen. Yeah. And then he right. also then has this true thing of not quite understanding what he's chosen for, which <laughs> is just like, that doesn't mean that it doesn't still feel really good to be chosen. It's still nice. <laughs> right. Especially because I think he sets off on that path from a feeling of having been rejected by his former student. Mm -hmm. And he thinks he's doing the right thing by presenting information about her mm -hmm. to the authorities. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, I loved that too. I thought that was so, um, such an interesting way to present because Lovely also only has like one touch point with, um, with her, with Jivan, you know, and, and PT Sir also only has like this one touch point and it's so, I don't know, I, I, I really love the truth of that, that like some people only know a little bit about you and they're going to think the best of you. And some people only know a little bit about you and they're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to think the worst of you. And I think that that's, that struck me as so, so true. Well, that is something that I really had not thought about until you said it right now. So thank you for bringing so much to these pages. <laughs> I've noticed that in some of the other uh, coverage that you've done, you've been asked about the parallels um, between what's been happening there and versus here. And um, it, of course, there, there are really horrifying parallels. Um, but I was curious if you, if you saw any hopeful parallels. Yeah, I think one thing to be hopeful about is that in both countries, there have been really powerful and sustained protest movements. You know, in India, a lot of the protests have been led by women, led by women who have never really seen themselves as activists coming out for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe a little bit similar to what's been happening here this summer with the Black Lives Matter uprisings. Um, so I think that spirit of protest, of demanding that the institutions that we live within serve us you know i think that is so powerful yeah yeah i, love I really that. this this book made me think of another india set book that i've read recently uh that was thinking about politics in particular and that's preachy tenaja's we that are young and there's a there's a queer character in that book and in this book lovely is a nationally recognized third gender in India. I didn't know that hedras were a thing. I, I went down so many internet rabbit holes reading about it and learning about it because, I mean, homosexuality was criminalized until just a couple of years ago, but also to have a state religion that sees and recognizes a third gender, I was like, whoa, the, <laughs> the dissonance was such, and thinking about particularly right now, in this country that there's a hard time for people even conceiving of differing sexualities, let alone different genders. And mm -hmm. like that, that we're so deep in that fight. And it, I really loved, I really loved learning from your book mm -hmm. and from getting to see the ways in which it, it can and absolutely will still be fraught 
when we get to a place where there's more acceptance of a gender spectrum, but also sort of the like the lovely wonder lovely pun unintentional, um, the hope and sort of joy that comes from it mm-hmm. and the I just I mean thank you. <laughs> it's so I feel like it's so rare that I read a book that teaches me something that I truly had no idea about. Right. Um, and it as a result it, it has recalibrated the way that I think about the gender equality fight in this country. Hmm. That is very generous, Drew. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, the research that you did and the rabbit holes that you went into is like all to your credit. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm glad that um, I'm glad that Lovely spoke to you. I think I really wanted to write a character who is kind of bold and defiant and has this joyous arc um, and chases this really wild dream of becoming a movie star from this place of, you know, great and complex marginalization. There's this great um, quote in a lovely chapter that I, um, that I marked where um, uh, in this life, everybody is knowing how to give me shame. So I am learning how to reflect shame back on them also. Just like, yeah, you do that. (laughs) I'm curious about your editor life versus your writer life um, and how you juggle those two things um, because they are very different, but of course they inform each other. You know, I think in many ways being an editor has made me a sharper reader. And so that means that I look at my own pages sometimes with a very harsh eye, you know? Um, I think also from reading a lot of manuscripts, I have, I'm still learning to articulate to myself what it is that excites me in a book, you know? So whether it's something about the movement or something at the sentence level, something about how the plot moves or how chapters are structured, I feel like I'm able to say, well, this is kind of what appeals to me in a book. Mm. Um, And that's been really helpful to have clear ideas of that in my head as I write. And the other thing is also, you know, I mean, you know this, but when you choose to work with an author you get to be, it's kind of like, you know, you read, I guess for you, Christopher, you read a query and you read something that makes you feel like this is so good. I have to like press it into everybody's hands and say that you have to read this right now. And that feeling of excitement and energy, um, being so close to that and then also helping the author make that better and make that clearer and stronger it teaches you so much, you know, it teaches you so much to be close to another writer's ambition in that way. Mm. Um, so I, I find it a really nourishing relationship. Um, do you both write as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can definitely turn this question back on you. Like what is it like <laughs> having these two lives? Oh, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Modest as ever. Uh, I don't know. 
all I know is I love books. I love them so deeply. I love working with writers. I love working on the back end of things and helping people create their best work. I love then sharing books in a, in a bunch of ways. And like, I don't get to share all the books that I want to as an agent. And then there's this great other place where I get to talk about all the things I love to read. And, um, and then, you know, all it does for me as a writer is I just continually look at all the books I own and all the books that I am working on and all the books that are in the slush and all the books that I've accepted to read that I have not read yet. And I think every day when I look at my own manuscript, does this need to exist? And if it does need to exist, it better be really, really good. <laughs> Uh, and so it sometimes leads to not writing anything at all, but I hope that someday it, it, I've just funneled out and used the filter to make something very good, but I've never published a book, so. I ask that question too, so I really love hearing that it's a valuable question for you. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Drew? Whenever I read a book, your book included where I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, the writer's having fun. That's what I want to, I like, <laughs> I just, I want, I want to do that because it has brought so much joy to me as a reader. When you feel that moment where the writer is just in it and it's great. I'm like, yes, I want to, I want to do that. I want to try to do that. Mm. And so it's, that's, I feel like it's kind of the, the flip side of the same coin of, the answer that you both gave really of this has to have a reason to exist. And there are these North stars that we can follow to try to provide that. Yeah. Wait, when, when do I get to read your books? Uh, Someday. 2025. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming as we get there. <laughs> We've been talking about like fun and joy um, and as it pertains to writing um, and reading. And then, you know, you brought us a very interesting book that doesn't have much fun or joy in it, but it does have that just need to exist uh, part of things. Um, bad news, last journalists in a dictatorship um, by Anjan Sundaram. Can you talk about what made you tell us to read this particular book? Yeah, I hope it wasn't too dark for, for, <laughs> this, for this summer, um, but it's a book that I read a few years ago, and um, I have my copy in my hands here, which I'm just going to show you, which I'm oh sorry, there's no visual component to this, but it's just full of little sticky notes. And um, I think it's a book that I love so much, but I never meet anybody who has read it or even really heard of it. Um, but I think it's just a vital book because it's about this writer, Anjan Sundaram, who goes to Rwanda to lead this workshop of mid-career journalists in that country. And he realizes that, you know, I think in the West for a while, Rwanda has had this um, 
image of being a success story mm-hmm. in the African continent, having moved beyond um, the violence of the genocide in the 90s. Um, but in this book, he shows how all of that is just a facade for this pretty brutal dictatorship. And he follows these journalists who are so relentlessly attacked and followed and um, stuff like that, that they are driven to paranoia. Um, It's a very frightening book. And I think it shows what can happen when journalists aren't free. And I've been thinking about this book this whole summer, or really even longer with all the attacks on the credibility of journalists and newspapers and news outlets in this country, how frightening it is to live in a society where the news isn't reported freely. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I I just kept thinking about the journalists that like lose their press passes for some reason to, to Trump briefings and, um, you know, that like his constant throwing the, his questions to the one network that is like on his side and is asking the questions that he wants to be asked. I just kept thinking like that, this is, that's the start. That's the one, because that's this, this is, that's, this is what, what happens if that is allowed to slide at all, because that it did not take that long for the Rwanda to get into this horrible space. I, w- I was really like, when did this come out? Because I really feel like we should have all been talking <laughs> about it. And it's like not that long ago. You know, it's a, it came, it was originally published in 2016. And it's just, I think it's just so, um, it's probably one of these things where it's just like, wow, that was really good. I don't know who to tell about this because it's all so bleak. Yeah. It's also, there's a blind spot from this country, particularly towards Africa. And the idea that, I mean, it's mentioned in the ways in which the genocide was even by every UN major player, just sort of like, eh, let's not talk about it. Cause then we'll have to do something about it. And I mean, it's, it's, I had never seen it so concisely put when in the first chapter, it's like basically, Hey, if you're reading this book and you have no idea about the context, um, 800,000 people were killed in like a hundred days just just let's start and it's like whoa okay right there's that and then that the like oh it could never happen here i feel like when this book came out in 2016 everybody would have been like wow that's a thing that happens in african countries and thank god we don't have to worry about it here and reading it this summer it really does feel like we are one or two steps away from exactly this. I mean, the it, Christopher, to your point about hope, it comes from the idea that like, even in the teeth of dictatorship, you have people who believe in truth and justice and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And like that, there is something very hopeful about that, but also it's terrifying that all of these things that we've more or less taken for granted that, I love the way too that as a journalist, Anjan Sundaram is able to show just how quickly it can go mm-hmm. in a way that's like, look, it this is how it happened and this is now what we're dealing with. Right. In a way that I think if I had read this book even 
even six months ago, honestly, I don't know if I would have felt so viscerally affected by it. Well, yeah, I, it's crazy because it <laughs> it worked. I mean, the, their their campaign worked. And, yeah, and like it's just um, th- he uses this phrase "mirage of a country," which is just like that. That felt so scary because like you've got this idea and also the just foreign aid like you know texting a certain number and that'll give ten dollars to rwanda i feel like i remember that mm-hmm. happening or like buy yep. this coffee and like 10 percent of our prote- proceeds are going to help this with the genocide and it's just like uh okay we've all done the performative um activism for some rwandan something and just knowing that all of that money is just funneled into the worst thing. I mean, I think that, you know, it always surprises me that this book did not get more attention and there weren't people kind of sharing this book and it didn't have more word of mouth. And sadly, I think it has, you know, something to do with the fact that it's about Rwanda and Mm -hmm. perhaps people don't feel that they're really able to pick up and just enter a book about a country that perhaps they don't know too much about. But yeah, I think it has so much to say about journalism and, and the place of the free press. It feels incredibly, incredibly urgent to me. I think especially now that like we're at this point in the summer where the pandemic is truly starting to seem endless. Mm-hmm. I think back in March, when we all started working from home, um, I definitely thought that we would be back at work in a couple months at the most, you mm-hmm. know? And to be in August and not know when this is truly going to end and to see, you know, the, I don't know, the, the looming, like terrible possible collapse of USPS, certainly the attacks on USPS and the attacks on voting by mail. Um, And I saw this terrifying video where the administration raised the possibility of like a third term saying, you know, they should get Uh, a redo. uh Yeah. And so just to see all of this stuff and then go back to your work email and respond to an email, (laughs) sometimes it just feels like, what are we doing? You know, we're (laughs) just like, yeah. Yeah. No, I I feel that fractured mind all the time because it's just like, especially because working in books and working on some of the things that it's just like, Oh yeah, we, I need to work on this fun thing too, that um, this writer has been working on for years and it's still just like a fun book, but it's still a years and years of their life. Um, And it's just like, Oh, okay. Well, all oh, that's fine. Now I need to go back to this um, thing about Mars, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, that I, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know how to make sense of it. And I appreciate when something can pull me in and keep me um, like your novel, a burning or like bad news, um, which you might think that you've heard all the bad news you need to hear. But I think this is one of these, urgent books even though it's published in 2016 that if you read it now you'll maybe get galvanized into keeping some helping keep the journalism alive in the U.S. as well. I definitely think that books um, you know I've been in Brooklyn this whole time 
really mostly in my neighborhood, you know, just going places where I can walk. Mm -hmm. Um, And books are my only, you know, change of scene. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, um, maybe since they are a change of scene, we should, uh, we should recommend a few uh, of the ones that have been particularly diverting recently. You want to start, Drew? Uh, sure. I have two. They are two compulsively readable novels that have also come out this summer. Uh, one is called Mexican Gothic mm-hmm. by Silvia Moreno Garcia. It is. It's basically a gothic novel like Rebecca, set in the fifties outside of Mexico City, and it just gets weirder like the that was the only logline that i knew going into it a friend had read it knew that i loved gothic novels and particularly rebecca and the films of alfred hitchcock uh and so i was like okay cool this i'm ready don't tell me anything else and it it sort of zigs in the way that like jane austen's northanger abbey zags where northanger abbey it's always like oh it's not actually scary in this book it's like oh god it's actually very scary Uh, And it turns into like a full on horror novel by the end of it in a way that I was so delighted by Mm. because it's, it's, uh, it's masterful. Um, I just got that book. So I'm really excited to hear your description and endorsement. And it's so fun and it's very lush. It's just, it's a great, like long weekend read. Awesome. Um, And the other one, which is also you'll devour it in a sitting or two because it's just that compulsive is Kate Reed Petty's true story, mm-hmm. which um, Emily Nemens, when she came on the show at the beginning of the year, had just read it in galleys and recommended it. And I had put it on my list. It is similar to trust exercise by Susan Choi in the way that it keeps unsettling your expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, all I'll, uh, the UK cover is a great hint at this because the UK cover is essentially four different covers. And like one is sort of a very uh, Christopher Pike style, like a murder cabin looking book. And another one is like a prom queen. And a third is like a very minimalist memoir. And you're kind of like, what? what is this book and what is the story that it's telling? And I don't, I really want to keep it a secret for anybody who wants to read it because she pulls off something incredible in the way that the story changes. The, the way the story appears on the page changes and she manages to do it like a thriller Mm. the whole time. So you're just like, okay, I need to know. And you have that, you know, in the best thrillers, you're like, I know you're not going to let me down. And she doesn't. Mm. It's just tremendous. Awesome. Uh, Megha? I really loved The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweke Amezi. It's a novel um, where you find out right away, I mean, it's in the title that the main character Vivek Oji has died. And then the whole novel travels kind of 
among members of their family, you know, various aunties in the community, their cousins. Um, and it's just this incredibly, it's a heartbreaking book, first of all. And then what I really loved about it too, and what I was just full of admiration for, is how the book is structured. Um, it is, it goes back and forth in time. It holds multiple perspectives. It has these layers of mystery and revelations. Things are not quite what you thought they were. Um, and it's just this beautiful book that is also written so skillfully. I loved it. Wow. Sounds awesome. I have it sitting on my shelf and that just put it on the top of my TBR stack. I, <laughs> I'm glad. I need to read it now. So I had the um, exciting chance to check out uh, Susanna Clark, uh, her novel. Um, I, I absolutely loved uh, her first book, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, and now this book is Piranesi and it's, um, it's about... It's about this person. You you start the novel and you're following this guy who says he is stuck in a maze and he likes being stuck in the maze. And there's only one other being in the maze that he doesn't know their name. He just calls them the other. Um, and he's just walking around and you've got this sort of idea like, is, it, is this just like a weird MC Escher? Uh, am I in just this very strange experimental novel? where they're just, he's just going to be wandering this maze with this other. And then as the details get filled in about what's actually occurring and, and what has happened, um, it's, it's just an incredible puzzle box. And um, of course, it also fits very well uh, in our own private labyrinths of our apartments. Um, and with maybe if you have a partner, <laughs> you could just <laughs> think of them as the other. Um, probably not as antagonistic, hopefully. <laughs> as what happens in Piranesi, but I um, was so excited about a follow-up book from her. I know she had the collection of short stories, but um, I was so excited about a novel from her because Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell changed my life. I just, I, it was this enormous book that really changed how I thought about how fiction could be written. And um, this one, she's just still at the top of her, the class, like you just want more. I feel like she's she's cemented herself in my mind. So intrigued. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think it, it comes out in October, I think. So pre-order it. You will not be disappointed. Um, it's an incredible book. So is A Burning. Um, go yes. buy that right now if you haven't. <laughs> it's, it's just a wonderful achievement. I, I hope you're just proud of this incredible thing that you put out into the world. Thank you both so much. It's such a dream to be read with so much care and generosity. So thank you for everything that you brought to the book. Oh, of course. And um, so everybody else, go buy that. Also, you can uh, go and check out what Catapult does. Uh, they're the awesome uh, imprint that where you work. And um, That's right. also, uh, please go on iTunes and rate us and go on patreon.com slash SMDB and uh, pay money to us if you like to do such things. <laughs> um, and, you know, just hang in there, everybody. Keep calm, carry on. I don't know. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's, what to it's the end of the summer, you know. Just gotta <laughs> just keep on keep the pedal to the metal. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we will see you all soon. Yeah. And um, thanks thank you again. Thank you so much. <laughs>